0: Democracy. from <laughs> <Destruction. laughs> threatening we, we
1: fail. and freedom fail.
2: Welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast discussing how our world was, is, and will be ordered. My name is Peter Sparding, and together with Rachel Tausenfreund, my colleague, I will function as the host of this new podcast. So, why another internationally focused podcast, one might wonder? Our idea behind this is that over the last few years, we have seen a lot of disruptions. First, coming from the outside, rising powers, tackling the existing order, questioning it. That's kind of to be expected. That's the historical case that always happens. But then... Recently, we have seen challenges to this order also on the inside of many of our countries. We thought that a lot of these debates around these topics kind of happen in silos. So the idea was that we would bring together and bridge these debates a bit. So instead of having economists talk about the future of global trade or inequality, populism experts talking about populism, and tech experts like Amy talking about tech, we thought, let's try to bring this all together and see what we can do with that. So that's, that's the idea. I have with me for this first episode some of our uh, distinguished fellows and colleagues. I'll quickly introduce them. So we have uh, Amy Studdard, who's a fellow with us here at GMF. Hello. We have Hans Kunani, he's uh, another fellow here at uh, GMF. Hi. And as mentioned before, Rachel, in from Berlin, um, also with us here in D.C. today.
0: Hi, pleasure to be here.
2: Today, we thought, well, as a jumping-off point for this discussion, we'll, we'll take a, a newsy topic. Um, and since we have Rachel in town from Berlin, I am German, Hans likes Germany, and Amy also likes <laughs> Germany, we, we thought, let's let's start with uh, what's happening there and, and kind of take it from there. So Germany is an interesting um, issue in this regard because it was for a long time seen as kind of the last man or last woman standing. It didn't seem as affected by uh, developments. But now over the last year or so, we've seen both on the inside with the election uh, in September that brought a new party into parliament and the inability to form a government now that there is now some trouble also in Germany. Plus, we have now seen a debate within Germany about its role in the world and whether things that were taken for granted, like transatlantic relations, are still as they were. So since, Rachel, you're in from Berlin, why don't you kind of uh, give us, uh, kick us off and give us the, the view from Berlin of where things stand?
0: Yeah, the view from Berlin is pretty cloudy. Like you said, there was this sort of moment after Brexit, before Macron's election, that everyone was looking to America, who'd just been, you know, named Person of the Year, and, and after she gave her sort of differentiated uh, statement about after trump's election you know there were lots of pieces i think especially in the u.s less so in germany saying oh Merkel's the new leader of the free world the new defender of the liberal order and she seemed she seemed really solid and stable and germany seemed really solid and stable fast forward to the election and you have a right-wing party getting 13 percent of the vote bigger than any more of the vote than any of the small parties and entering the german parliament for the first time, a right-wing party.
3: What do you mean by the small parties?
0: Right. So Germany has a slightly more complicated party system. You have the two big tent parties, or at least they used to be big tent parties, and they're supposed to be big tent parties. So the Christian Democrats center-right, Social Democrats center-left. It's even a little bit more complicated than that because there's a Bavarian wing to the Christian Democrats, and I'm just going to lump them together. And then you have the smaller parties that usually get somewhere between, you know, seven, eight, ten 15% of the vote. Those are the Greens. The Green Party, they're similar to all of Europeans' Green parties. And then you have the Left Party, which splintered from the Social Democrats a while ago. And then on the sort of center-right side, you have the Liberals or the Free Democrats. These were the traditional um, parties for the last few elections. Um, And then this time entering the scene, you have the Alternative for Germany party, the AfD, and that's a a right-wing party. Basically, what happened is, first of all, you have a right-wing party entering. Second of all, you have Merkel winning the election but having lost, actually, um, a a big chunk of the vote. And so she was left a chancellor with whom nobody wanted to govern. Because the other thing about the German system is um, usually unless one party gets a simple majority, which is very rarely the case, they they have to find a party that will govern with them. So Merkel won, but right away the Social Democrats said we're not going to run. Um, we're not going to run the government with her. We don't want to be a junior partner, and and then they tried to build this um, novel coalition between the Greens and the Liberals, which everyone called the Jamaica coalition because of the colors: black, green, yellow. Which was, you know, that's a very I think German particularity that everyone um, referred to this as Jamaica, but. For about four weeks, all of the talk was of this Jamaica coalition. Isn't it going to be interesting and cool and different? Though some people, including Hans, said that's not going to work. And in this I said case, it might not work. It might not work. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to give you yeah, too I much know. credit. <laughs> um, and and in fact, it didn't work. So they talked for about four weeks. Then the Liberals said, "Nope, not doing it." Um, and so Germany still has no government.
2: Um, it has an acting government, but yes, not a new government.
0: They have so they have a new parliament. And they have the old government still acting. um, So, I
3: mean, as someone who doesn't follow German politics particularly closely, one of the things I found really interesting about the debate around what's gone on here is this question about, is this just, you know, politics as usual in Germany? Or does it have something to do with these broader trends that we're seeing internationally around rising populism and people looking for alternatives to the normal mainstream parties? I'd be interested to hear all of your takes on that.
0: Yeah, I mean— Hans, I don't know if you want to jump in. I, I, I would say yes. It's related to the kind of weakening of this center um, that we're seeing in, in lots of places, um, and there might be some, you know, some special Germanisms about the case. Um, Hans, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question, um, and I think what, I agree with you, Rachel, that there are. This is part of a of a broader trend, um, sort of. Um, shift towards the extremes, um, but there are some things that are peculiar about the German version of this. Um, and in particular, I think, um, I mean, actually, the way I think about it is that what we've seen in Germany is, is somewhat of an extreme form in some ways um, of, of what's happening elsewhere. And What I mean by that is that um, you have this um, convergence in the center ground. Um, you know, So throughout the West, it seems to me, at least if you think about Britain and America um, and Germany and, and other countries, um, you've had the center left and center parties kind of converging um, in the center ground, um, particularly around economic policy, um, you know, a, a, an economic policy that critics would call neoliberalism. And, and, and um, as a consequence, um, extreme parties becoming stronger. The particular German element, I think, is uh, in the way in which I think this is, this is sort of an extreme, that you have an extreme form of this in Germany, is that um, instead of just the, this kind of ideological convergence, uh, which also I think is, is, has happened in quite an extreme form in Germany, on top of that, you have the way that um, you know, for um, two of the last three electoral periods, you've had grand coalitions in Germany where they actually governed together. Um, so, you know, I think this does structurally kind of strengthen, um, the, the extreme parties in in this particular case, the, um, the AFD, as Rachel mentioned.
2: Yeah, I think the interesting thing is, as Hans mentioned, there is a convergence between the economic policy of the center left, center right. But the, the reason that that might have an impact, um, on the rise of, uh, of other smaller parties is also because it makes economic policy absent from the political debate because it's no longer the main uh, thing that political parties usually uh, debate. So interestingly, Germany is doing well economically. Most people in surveys say they feel fine about their personal economic well-being and so on. So it's not that they're unhappy with the result, but it's not the main topic. Instead, other topics become much more important than
1: the debate. And and, and, and just to complete that thought in a way, then it seems to me that one of the big cleavages in politics becomes around issues of culture. So it seems to me there's a way in which, um, and actually this is an argument that Ivan Krastev and others have made, neoliberalism produces identity politics.
0: Yeah, which in in Germany, I think you have two two sort of special um, pieces to this, which is First of all, the SPD in the the Social Democrats in the last election, they did try to talk about economics and say, you know, inequality is a real problem, um, we're not doing enough to help the poor. The problem was they had been in the government. So it's kind of hard to come out and say we're going the wrong path, we're doing all the wrong policies and, you know, not have everyone question, yeah, but weren't you governing when all of these policies were made, right? So that's part of the problem with the Social Democrats positioning themselves in the grand coalition, and then the cultural element is, of course, the you know migration crisis, refugee crisis, yeah. which even you know even outside of everything else, would have brought cultural issues and what is Germany and what is the future of Germanness in Germany um, would have brought it to the fore.
1: But the Social Democrats' criticism of um, of Merkel's economic policy. Um, was very half-hearted. Um, so Martin Schultz, the Social Democrat candidate, at the beginning of the campaign, um, um, his first couple of speeches um, um, seemed to distance himself from, well, not just from Merkel, actually, but also from the Social Democrats' um, um, uh, economic policy going back to Schroeder. Um, but he um, then backed off of that. Um, and here, in a sense, in defense of Schultz, I have I think you have to say that the reason he did that, um, I mean, I wish he'd gone further with it too, but the reason he did that was because he knew that this is very, this is this is basically, you know, there is a consensus among the German population behind this economic policy. You know, um, as Adam Tooze um, phrases it, you know, hegemony, uh, uh, sorry, austerity is so hegemonic in Germany that in some ways, I mean, I think one of the interesting questions is, if Schultz had have gone further, in this criticism of, of, of Merkel and, and, and essentially moved to the left on economic policy, would he have done better than he actually did in the election or worse? And I think that's, a, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think there's, a, there's a, at least a chance. Um, I don't know what you think, Peter, but I think there's at least a chance that they would have got even, you know, an even lower share of the votes um, than the 20, point 20... 20 points 20% that, yeah, the that they got. Yeah, and there is already a party
2: In the political spectrum in Germany the left that was mentioned before that does that so it's always difficult for the social democrats they squeeze from multiple sides there um where to go go to the center go to the left but there is already at least one alternative on that policy
0: yeah no i I would agree with that i think um we don't we don't know if it would have been even worse for this i would have liked to see them try because then we would know right (laughs) um you know we don't know if political leadership can have any results because nobody's trying
1: it. Yes, exactly. And, and and even if they would have kind of done worse, it would have meant that, um, I mean, in a sense, it would have been good for German democracy, I think, in, in the sense that it would have meant that you would have had genuine alternatives in the centre ground of German politics. In other words, a centre-right party and a centre-left party offering real alternatives to each other. Um, um, and, you know, my sense is that's, that's just good for German democracy, even if it's bad for the SPD. And that's one of the interesting questions, I think, is whether there's now a sort of a zero-sum game, um, uh, you know, that the SPD now faces this difficult dilemma about whether it joins a grand coalition after all or tolerates a minority uh, government led by Merkel. Um, and I do wonder whether actually now the, there's a sort of divergence, as it were, between um, what's good for the SPD and what's good for German democracy. So can I ask, actually, to bring this into a bit of an
2: international sphere? So initially, after the developments in the UK with Brexit and the election in the US, there were all these articles that Rachel mentioned, mostly not in Germany, but um, still about Angela Merkel being the... New leader of the free world, or whatever you want to call it, those works, exa- of course. And we took on a
3: lot of that debate on the Out of Order blog, of course, and I think all yeah. three of you ended yeah. up <laughs> writing various versions of Merkel will not save the liberal
0: <laughs> two, order. <laughs> two different reasons.
2: I was actually going uh, to prod Hans to explain, I think, because he makes the uh, has the the case down the best. Uh, so what? Why that was uh, in your view never a real opportunity and what the current moment then now where we have a bit of uncertainty in German domestic politics, what does that mean now for this already fraught notion?
1: Well, yeah, I never understood this sort of idea of, um, of, you know, Germany as the last woman, man standing as, by the way, I think, I think Germany is masculine. It's not, it's it's the last man standing, even though the chancellor is female, because it's a fatherland. Um, So actually, Germany is masculine, unlike some other countries. Um, anyway, I never understood this idea of, of Germany as the last man standing, um, um, let alone this I think completely absurd idea that um, that Merkel was the new leader of the of the free world. Um, insofar as that idea of the US president as the leader of the free world during the Cold War made any sense and it wasn't a term that I would normally use but but people who used it, what they meant by that was that um, you had... Um, This power, the United States, that had these vast military resources that it was prepared to use to defend democracy. Now, Germany is just not in that position. So you can't simply become the leader of the free world. Um, as the Chancellor of Germany, just because people like you, um, or because you stand for the right principles, um, you know, if there's an analogy with the Cold War, I think it would be something like you know Sweden during the Cold War or something like that. You know, it says all the right things, but you just don't have the power resources. Um, and more importantly, and this in a sense takes us to a broader discussion of the liberal international order and the crisis in the liberal international order. Um, it seems to me that um, you know Germany is kind of a free rider in the liberal international order. So I think there's a, you know, and I mean that both in terms of security, um, and in terms, and in economic terms, you know, which is to do with the German current account surplus and so on. Um, the role that the US traditionally has played as a sort of hegemon in the liberal international order has been to provide these public goods. Um, and, it, and it's not just that Germany can't provide those public goods, can't replace the US in providing those public goods, but it's actually that it requires another power to provide those public goods to Germany because it's particularly dependent um, on the provision of these public goods, even beyond other comparable EU member states like France um, and the UK. And again, I'm thinking both in, in economic terms and in security terms. Um, so, you know, I thought that actually after, you know, if you want to say that anybody is now the, the the new leader of the free world after the election of Trump, I think, you know, Macron and even Theresa May have a much stronger claim to that than, than Merkel did. Well,
2: Macron wasn't there yet, right? So the reason or I Hollande, always thought... Right, the reason I always thought was that it looked like for a while there, Germany was the only country where something... Unusual hadn't happened yet, so by default, it became this thing. I I don't think anyone in Germany, at least you you live in Berlin. When I visit, no one there thought this was a real thing. But the yeah, it wasn't an
0: idea; it was desperation. Right. Right.
2: Well, and Merkel Merkel rejected as well. Exactly, and said it was grotesque. But what they would say sometimes is that within Europe. It, Germany could play a certain role yes. right so yes. that is I, I'm going to draw you guys do you think that's a, the the thing and now of course that Macron has been elected there's all this talk about Germany and France together can play a renewed role I don't think anyone's claiming they can replace the U.S. in the international order but is there this this idea does it have any validity that together they could kind of take some of of the burden on it
3: I mean to sort of step back a little bit. I think the debates about Merkel as leader of the free world or whatever were about Merkel as leader of the European Union, in essence, and how can you use the EU as a vessel for um, advancing democracy and and, um, global markets. And I mean, it's interesting because we've had this ongoing debate um, really since 2008 about Europe as a global leader, right? As Hans said, the the question about military power, that's not just a German issue, that's a European issue. Europe isn't able to provide those public goods. And so that doesn't fix the Germany problem, right? It's just an economic powerhouse, and for a little while perhaps it was held up as an example of a stable, peaceful regional actor that could be a model for Asia, South Asia, Latin America, yada, yada, yada. Um and it was a sort of post-nationalist dream. Um, and so you get into this sort of really complicated debate about does has Europe really addressed any of those challenges? No. Um, in fact, it's got a lot worse. And I think most people would agree with that. Um, and this if it's not, not gonna be an optimistic even, podcast. <laughs> and and if we if if we can agree that the EU isn't that vessel yet, why does it matter if Macron and um, Merkel could really even reach a compact yeah. about what EU leadership looks like.
0: I mean, it goes back a bit to, you know, the, the the foundational dream of Europe, which the sort of really pure, passionate Europeans have always had this idea of being, you know, the United States of Europe, and it's going to be, a, you know, a good, kind, moral, rule-following, um, global goods-providing, not-hegemonic um, version of the United States, and this has been a sort of optimistic vision that's that's powered generations of you know of young people studying European studies like myself um who you know had this idea it's you know it's always been pretty far from reality, and you've had you know lots of academics who've studied the integration process who've even said you know there may have been sort of philosophers and passionate people on the street talking about this, but that was never how integration um, really happened or the real motives behind it. But I think the dream doesn't die. And it's, you know, for good reason, right? I think you need this dream to make anything happen.
2: That's similar to the US.
0: Like similar to the US, yeah. You know, more perfect union, right? right? They're just maybe slightly further away from even being a union, let alone perfect, right? And we're a union and far from perfect. So I think that's just what we're seeing again, is this kind of last, but this time with a sense of, I, I would say appropriate desperation of like it really has to happen now because this kind of status quo is, is um is is crumbling, right? And this goes back
3: to the point that Hans made, right? Ideals can't stand on their own. They need power behind them to defend them. Um and yes, for us. Europeanists who love this idea of multilateralism and everybody getting along, um, that's all well and good. But without real hard power, whether it's economic, at, at probably economic and military, it doesn't really count for much.
2: Well, Hans, you, uh, let me draw you out on this because you wrote a, a piece earlier this year after the inauguration here, basically saying, given the US's new uh, approach to the world or likely approach, now is the time that Europe and especially Germany would have to step up, especially on the security front. So we're a uh, little bit than a year in. Do you see this this debate that Amy just described as kind of a necessary um, uh, precursor? Is, is there any movement in this, in the current setup?
1: Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think this is a different situation to previous moments in the history of the EU. I think we're in a completely new situation now, precisely because of the way that, with the election of Trump as president of the United States, there's this uncertainty about the U.S. security guarantee, um, and that's that's unprecedented because you know the um, it's not just that the that um, the U.S. security guarantee goes back to the, you know the beginning of European integration, but it was the precondition for European integration even to take place. Um, so I think there's a real question now um, uh, about whether, I mean, I don't know the answer to this question, but I think it is a, a real question about whether actually European integration can continue, um, or whether, whether perhaps it even goes into reverse once you pull away the certainty about the U.S. security guarantee. Um, this is a very, very difficult theoretical question, um, I think. But do you see any recognition of this in the German debate, for example? Yes. Yeah, so, so, um, you know, there's been this debate, um, going on over the last, um, you know, few weeks, um, prompted actually by a manifesto written, um, by a group of German Atlanticists, um, including some colleagues, including, a, including the head of the Europe program at, at GMF, Thomas Klein and Um, and, um, I think there is now a debate about this, um, I'm actually just in, in, the, in the process of writing together with someone else a, a contribution to this debate. M- my sense is that um, there's a, the, 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 the idea of sort of post-Atlanticist um, Germany and Europe is both necessary and impossible. <laughs> um, you know, It's necessary because I think actually this uncertainty about the U.S. security guarantee is not going to go away. I don't think it's just about Trump. I think it's, it's sort of both predates Trump and, and, and will out, outlive Trump. I think there's a, there's a, there's a longer uh, term shift going on in, in, in US um, foreign policy, which has to do with what I mentioned earlier, this sort of um, role that the US had as a provider of public goods. I think it's gradually become less willing to provide those public goods. Um, So I think it means that actually um, Europeans are now in this completely um, unprecedented situation and do need to become strategically autonomous, to use the term that's that's used a lot in these debates. But at the same time, that is basically impossible for them to do, at least in the um, short or medium term, Um, mainly because, I mean, partly because of some of these institutional questions and the the fault lines within the EU that that you mentioned, um, Amy, but also because in the end, um, the amount of money that you'd have to spend is just beyond the the ability um, of, of Europeans to, to do you know they've been struggling and, and again here Germany is a sort of extreme case it's one of the worst offenders um, um, it's been struggling to get to two percent of GDP uh, on defense which is what NATO countries commit to um, but I think actually if you were to be really strategically autonomous you um, um, you would have to go way beyond 2%, is my is my sense.
0: Sure. Especially if each individual country is spending their 2% and there's a lot of sort of overlap, right, because that's the other debate, is they are actually spending cumulatively a certain amount on defense. Yes. Um, it's just they're not getting much bang for the buck because there's a lot of kind of overlap and then gaps, uh, you know, real capacity gaps. Yes. The other thing that I find interesting in terms of this debate of – you know Europeans being responsible for their own security, and um, and kind of pushing Europe for, forward in this. And there is some there's some momentum right now be, um, behind defense cooperation, which is interesting. Um, but you know in debates in Berlin, you also at the same time you know you'll hear people talking about Trump and um, and changes in U.S. policy with a real you know, and they're they're quite upset. Um, about this idea that, for example, with Ukraine, you know, um, Obama, who, you know, in general is pretty popular, but Obama left us alone to deal with the Ukraine crisis. And it's it's really this idea and not that, you know, no one steps back to say, maybe that makes sense, right? Maybe you should be, like, maybe you should be able to deal with a crisis like that on your border that was caused or initiated by process of European integration. And there's not even that, you know, there's no one in the room who says, but wait, actually, doesn't that make sense? Isn't that the future we should be expected um, to be preparing for?
1: Well, except I would see that slightly differently because I just don't think Germany can stand up to Russia, mainly because it's not a nuclear
0: power. Sure, but that's still part of the debate of should it be possible for Germany and its partners, you know, then you can say, we can't. Why can't we? So what do we need to get there? Yeah. And, you know, there were like yeah. tiny moments of the nuclear debate after the election of Trump. Well,
2: and there was the, you know, Merkel always with Hollande in these debates with a nuclear power. But I think the the main point before yeah. getting into the 2% questions, the, the, what I was trying to get at, what I'm always wondering is before any of that could happen, the de- what I'm struggling with or trying to find out is whether the debate in Germany is changing towards a – I don't want to say recognition, or but at least uh, an acceptance that when when we hear these speeches like Sigmar Gabriel's speech yesterday, that, uh, you know, the world is changing, we can't rely on our uh, U.S. partners to some extent, as the chancellor said anymore. What does that then do in the public debate? I think there's more maybe acceptance in Berlin of this. But what is the the momentum in the public debate? Because without it, I, I agree, like, of course... There's the ability to spend more money on this. It's not like, you know, Germany has the economic capabilities and so on. But without it being a recognized goal in a public debate, I think it's really difficult
1: politically. You kind of have to do it
2: almost secretly.
1: I, I'm not actually sure if Germany could do this, because I, th- I think it would involve I such I I don't say 2%. Right. I think it's such a recalibration of the German economic model. I mean, it's an interesting question. But but, but the Gabriel speech is, is, is particularly interesting, I think, because it, I think it, it captures precisely this... Um, sort of disingenuousness in the German debate. Um, because, you know, Gabriel talks about, you know, basically strategic autonomy, at least moving towards it and becoming more independent of the United States. And yet he's the person who during the um, election campaign in Germany, um, was 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 saying, um, we're not going to spend 2% of GDP on um, on de- on defense in response to Trump, even though you know the Social Democrats um, you know ha- controlled the Foreign Ministry when. Germany committed to doing that? You know, so there's such a degree of, of dishonesty. This feels like the moment where any
2: German should step up to defend. Uh, <laughs> we don't have any. Um, uh, yes, we
0: do. But I, I don't know if it's, you know, that's,
2: that's, I, I'll go as far as to say uh, disingenuous, maybe, but also you could also see it. it's difficult to make this case uh, in Germany. So the population is well trained over decades not to think in these terms and Rightfully so. Um, so it's 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 a long process. We have seen this since 2014, an effort, I think, a concerted effort by many in Berlin to break into this um, notion that hard power is not no longer relevant. And in Germany, you often get this, you know, why why even try? The only real danger is a much larger power to our east, if ever, and we're not going to be able to uh, get on, on par with that. So why even uh, do anything in between? So there's, I, I think you could, you know, the, the, the generous case would be to say German politicians are slowly pre- laying the groundwork. And of course, the campaign kind of can be taken out. And actually, maybe to bring this to a transatlantic focus, since we're yeah. uh, discussing this transatlantically, I think the, the, one of the problems is with the election of um, Donald Trump is that he, for those people who don't want to move in this direction, Trump's um, kind of comments on this give a great excuse because now in the Germany debate or in other debates, you can say, well, we're not going to do it just because the U.S. president, in this case, a very unpopular president, is telling us that we now need to do this and thereby forgetting that Germany had committed to this way before and that many other U.S. presidents had said this a long time ago. But he gives great, um, you know... Uh, excuses for yeah. this, and especially the way it's being said. So there, that's where the transatlantic angle comes in. Maybe we want to...
0: No, it, it does make it easy to sort of, you know, standing up to Trump in any form is basically quite popular. Plus, um, you know, there's a big peace movement um, and population support for sort of peace and anti-military in Germany. So it's a it's just a popular position to take. But I would also say, um, I mean, it's kind of funny because what we're, what we're wishing for maybe, is the creation of a foreign policy blob in Berlin um, that runs foreign policy in a way that's completely detached from what the public actually wants, right? So if we, if we make the comparison to what we're seeing now, you know, uh, Jeremy Shapiro, a former colleague colleague of um, some of ours, he said, you know, who definitely lost the last two elections was the foreign policy community, right? Because Obama beat, I mean, two election cycles, because Obama beat Clinton, And Trump beat Clinton. And Trump beat all the sort of foreign policy establishments. So who's losing is the blob, is this this foreign policy consensus. Um, Because why? You know, they're not able to sort of sell it to the population. And you have politicians who are willing to admit that, you know, and campaign on that. So that's, you know, and we view that as a problem, you know, for uh, many people do anyway, for, you know, U.S. foreign policy, for global stability. And yet... Um, That's always what Germany says. Germany says we don't have political consensus. Our population doesn't want this. Um, And and we want them to do the exact thing that we're seeing doesn't work. And not only that, you know, they have a much harder starting point, as Peter said, because they really do have a kind of anti-military, deeply ingrained training for about 40 years.
1: That's fascinating. So so in a sense, um the US is becoming more like Germany, where there's a disconnect between between the blob and, and the people. What's the German for blob? <laughs> I don't know, actually. <laughs>
2: Good question. Uh but I, I do I mean there's reasons for why there was pushback. I mean the the blob made some mistakes over the last yeah, twenty sure. years that were quite significant. So I I'm not saying this is just out of nowhere this this pushback. So
3: I mean it's also foreign policy, the world has become much more complex, right? So as the complexity increases, the capacity for politicians to run campaigns that say this is what our policy will look like, yada, 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 that is truthful and genuine and can still fit into a political campaign, that doesn't exist. And I mean, the Obama case is really interesting because actually by the end of his eight years, Obama was fully part of the blob and like taking all of our advice. and.
1: We'll see. I mean certainly the way he saw it was that that it was precisely the other way around, that he liberated himself from the blob. You know, and and the the the, the, the you know not enforcing the red line on Syria is the turning point, right? This is this is what he says in the the interview with Jeffrey Goldberg and The Atlantic, that at the beginning of his administration, um Libya in particular, he's following the advice of the blob. Um that's his biggest mistake, he thinks, in retrospect, um in foreign policy. And then he liberates himself over Syria and then and then you know, after that, he's he's more independent of the blob. Isn't that his his take on it?
3: Well, I mean, I suppose I see it more from an Asia angle because I was uh, okay, working on right, Asia right, right during his administration, um, and on Asia, it's certainly the case that he started out, you know, two-way radio with China, yada yada yada, yeah. and by the end of it, he was
1: that's interesting
3: yeah. all on board with the Asia policy containment, community. basically, and yeah.
2: <laughs> so I think maybe we'll leave it at that for this episode, but we.
3: We've resolved um,
2: everything. We, we have cleared everything. And clearly we're naming this podcast The Blob in the future. So. <laughs> the Blob in German. <laughs> yeah. Please send in uh, suggestions. Um, but as any good podcast, you know, we had to uh, come up with a great way to end the show. And Amy was the one who um, kind of rescued us from a number of uh, not so good ideas. So Amy, <laughs> do you want to actually explain what you're... Were- what your thought was.
3: Sure. So we're going to call this segment Think or Tank. Um, and the idea is that we will, um, each of us will share with you something that either made us think or that we thought completely tanked. I, I, another thing that we want to try and do with this is get outside of the blob and really get to this multidisciplinary cross-sector conversation um, about the liberal order. And so, for me, one of the things that really made me think last week was this interview with Jay-Z in the New York Times about... Naturally. (laughs) Naturally. um, In which Jay-Z talks quite a bit about... um, the election of Donald Trump and race in America. And he, um, he quotes Kanye West, who famously supported Donald Trump, and I believe is still um, making hints that he's trying to run for president in 2020, which would be very entertaining. Um,
2: no more entertainment, please. <laughs>
3: um, Jay-Z is asked, you know, what do you think of Trump and race in America? And he says, actually, I think that the election of Donald Trump was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And then he quotes Kanye West and says, racism's still alive. We're just concealing it um and it's it's really interesting about um the political debate at the moment where i think people want to have the fights mm-hmm. it's not okay that Racism, you know, we had the first black president. Racism was still alive and well in America, but we didn't talk about it because, hey, guys, it's okay because there's a there's a black president. And I think you you can sort of translate that to so many different things that just came up here where people actually want to have the economic debate Mm -hmm. Um, and politics for a little while didn't really present those
0: options to society. Um, so that's just something that made me think. That,
2: that's your think,
0: good. I'm, I'm actually gonna jump in only because mine is re- very closely related. I also have a think. There's a piece in The Atlantic by Stephen Metcalf about John Wayne and American masculinity. And there's also a podcast about it, Radio Atlantic, which is, so I recommend both of those. Um, and I think, you know, first of all, just sort of the idea of John Wayne and the history of how John Wayne become became this um, ideal figure for American masculinity is, is interesting. Um, but I, I think it's related in the sense of, you know, it's sort of part of, or it's, you know, definitely this article and that podcast was, you know, related to the Me Too debate, and that too, I think, is happening because Trump won. Had Trump lost, it would have been the Obama moment where we would have said, okay, yes, you know, his behavior was problematic, and there is some problematic behavior out there, but now we have a female president, so clearly everything is fine, um, but then, he won and she lost, and therefore this narrative of clearly everything is fine doesn't work. And mm. um, and now I think we're having this whole debate precisely because he won, um, and it's you know it's pushing people so, to. So we
2: have two pieces that say great Trump won.
0: It's <laughs> <that's> really helpful. <laughs> Good. Yeah, um, Th- that's that's <laughs> my interpretation of the piece. The piece is really just about uh, uh, John Wayne and masculinity, but.
1: Wow. Well, it's difficult to follow those because they both sound really interesting. Um, Mine is going to seem boring in comparison because I was trying to think... I'm still following, so it's going to get even worse. (laughs) Okay.
0: But, Um. But I'm counting on you to have a tank.
1: Tons. No, I'm afraid oh. not. Um, I was Are we trying... all
0: just going to be really nice
1: about it? Also, next next time, if I'm invited back, I will come up with a tank. Um, okay. But I was trying to simply, since we were talking about the German election and its implications, I was trying to think of the best things to read on the German election. Sure. So the two, if I can have two, if that's all right. And the first is the um, Spiegel, the Spiegel. Um, uh, in-depth report on the Schultz campaign, a reporter from the Spiegel accompanied Schultz, and it's an incredible... um, Is it in English too? It is in English, exactly, on the Spiegel website. Um, And it's just an incredible um, kind of um, glimpse inside the the Schultz campaign and the the dysfunctionality of it, and precisely all of the issues we were talking about earlier, the inability of Schultz to take on Merkel and offer an alternative. And about uh, Currywurst in Berlin, (laughs) right? Yes. it, it, ex- exactly. Yes. Um, yes. Currywurst does seem to play quite a big, um, quite a big role in it. Um, so that that is a. I think that just gives a great insight into into what went wrong for the Social Democrats. And the second piece that I'd like to re- recommend, which is more sort of analysis, is a piece by Klaus Offer, um, who's a German academic, a soci- sociologist, um, who I think is one of the most incisive. Um, analysts of Germany, of Europe in general. And he wrote a great book called Europe Entrapped, which um, analyzes kind of where Europe's at. It's a couple of years old now, but still very, very good in terms of analyzing the fault lines within Europe and how difficult it is to kind of overcome overcome them. Um, anyhow, he wrote a, a, a much shorter piece um, um, right after the, the German election um, at the beginning of October, Simply called after the German election, what happens next? It was published on Social Europe, um, and it's one of the best um, things I've read um, about um, about what really happened in in the German election from sort of you know thirty five thousand feet. Um, and in particular, it's what we discussed earlier. It's about the the, the way that um, the sort of grand coalitions um, have um, you know um, produced a certain kind of complacency. Um, uh in German politics. Um and that in a sense, what's happened with the the election this year is that um the centrist parties have been punished for that.
2: Okay, so I'm uh I also have a think uh piece to offer. And as is often the case, Hans has kind of already ruined it for me
0: <laughs> because he mentioned
2: it in the debate. Um so I was gonna do the uh you know good uh thing as a GMF employee and plug uh this transatlantic manifesto and I will go as far as say, an and the ensuing debate. So there is um, the manifesto itself, which was published in English in the New York Times, and we will link to it. And then there was a response in uh, Germany, in Die Zeit, by um, journalists from that newspaper. And I happen to know that others, uh, maybe around the table, are itching to also get into this uh, debate. So um, follow uh, this. It's, it's kind of about what we discussed um, how Germany responds and deals with the. New transatlantic world.
3: Okay, I will do a tank. Oh, great. (laughs) Um, Just for the sake of the feature. um, Poor John McCain's social media team. What happened? Unfollow McCain. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So McCain's social media team tweeted out a thing pleading for 75 more followers so that they could hit 3 million. This in the midst, of course, of the tax debate and John McCain's... um, Uh, voting in favor of it and support of it. Um, So that was a bit of a... What happened? Uh, he lost I, I, when I looked at it. He he'd lost around seventy five thousand followers, but that was yesterday. <laughs> so he's a lot further off three million than he had been. I, I mean, it's a, it's just um, it's interesting in the context of the liberal order piece as well because so many of us looked at McCain and we were like, yes, here is the principled Republican yeah. who you know really does stand for the liberal international order, and then um, and people were very excited about it, and of course his vote on the um, healthcare. Bill was delightful for many of us. Um, and now you you see his reputation just sort of panning again. Um, so, Peter?
2: Social media is difficult. So I think we'll, we'll close this pilot episode. Um, if this works well, we'll come back. If not, we will also come back. So please follow us, send us suggestions, um, what we should do better or different. And we hope to uh, be back soon. Thanks.